We are in Psalm 133 in our Psalms of Ascent series. So if you can find that, Psalm 133. I'm going to go ahead and give you a heads up too, because we are going to be in Ephesians 4 and John 17 today. So if you want to find those, we're going to be in some lengthy passages there in Ephesians 4, John 17, but we're going to start in Psalm 133. Again, Psalms of Ascent, what a gift that we've been given that for the last um, 13 weeks we've been walking through these Psalms of Ascent, which are um, a smaller portion of Psalms that the pilgrims would sing together on their way to Jerusalem. Um, And so they would encourage one another and they would be reminded of this corporate identity that they have. This identity that they have as the people of God that maybe they didn't remember all the time. But they had these songs that they would sing reminding them of of that identity. And they would sing it together as they traveled. And what we're going to see in these last two psalms, this psalm and the next psalm, is is the psalms of ascent also, for, for a couple different reasons they're called that. One is that they would ascend into Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was at a higher elevation than some of the surrounding areas. And so some people think that that's why they're called the Psalms of Ascent. Some uh, scholars believe that they're called the Psalms of Ascent because they would sing them as they stepped up the temple steps into worship, um, into the presence of God. And so they would sing these as they would ascend. But also you'll see that these last two Psalms are really just uh, glorying in who God is. We've, we've seen kind of this gamut of circumstances run through the Psalms where, where it's uh, maybe they're just starting out on the journey and they're worried about some of the, the travel or they're worried about um, being, you know, being waylaid in the process of going and so really resting in God's strength to carry them through. But whatever it was, there was always uh, this idea that they were moving forward and then in these last two, we're really going to see, man, there's just this, this glory of worship as they get into the presence of God and realize and see who He is. And, and they can look back and see God's faithfulness to bring them on the journey. And so we get to do that today, too. We're in Psalm 133. Uh, I'm thankful for James. He preached the really long psalm in these Psalms of Ascent, and I get to preach all the short ones, which is fantastic. Uh, but Psalm 133, while it's a really short psalm, we, we have a lot that we can glean from it today. And, and so I want to read it for us, and then I'm going to pray again, because that's what we really like to do. Psalm 133 says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God, we pray because we are dependent. We pray because we're a a people who need you. That's why we gather. We gather because we long to hear your word. We long to not only hear your word, but have our lives transformed by it for your glory. And so we would ask today that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us hearts of faith that would believe that what we're reading is true. God, I pray that, that then when we go into the places that you've called us to, our homes, our places of work, schools, God, neighborhoods, parks, 
God, that you would be glorified in our lives. Lord, that we would have words to speak to the truth of the change that you're doing in us. God, we thank you for these things. We pray that all of it would be for your glory. We trust you for it. Lord, just allow us today um, to rejoice in the unity of brothers dwelling together, the, the beauty of the unity of brothers dwelling. Lord, we thank you for that. Trust you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 133. It's written by David. So if some of your Bibles might even say that at the top. A song of a sense of David. When brothers dwell in unity is how my Bible uh, lists a, a title for it. So this idea of unity, if we've learned much in this past year, by the way, Happy New Year. It's good to be with you together in 2021. It's pretty exciting. But if we learned anything from 2020, it's that there's uh, a desire for unity, and yet there's not a lot of unity. <laughs> We've seen that. We've seen it in a lot of different ways. We've seen it in uh, the election. We've seen it in some of the, the things that are going on with, with responses to COVID. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Right? Those simple things, but really it's it's a, it's a desire for unity, a desire. We want to be right. We want to be together in being right. Um, the, the racial conversation that's happening is, is, it, is a, a discussion about unity, right? And so as we look at this and we read this first line and we see David say, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We're, we're kind of like, man, that sounds really cool, but I don't know. That, that sounds beautiful. That sounds awesome. But I don't know what unity really looks like. We have a lot of false unities, right? We have a false unity of uh, being fans of the same team, whether you're an Oregon Ducks fan, right, or you, you're a soccer fan or whatever it is, what kind of fan you are, that kind of unifies us sometimes. But that's a false unity. It's a unity that's going to go away, um, May we share a, a similar affinity, a love for something. Those, those types of things unify us together. Maybe it's family that, that has been kind of a false unity for us um, because those things fade away. Maybe children become wayward or uh, parents pass. We've seen a lot of, a lot of that this year. Maybe, maybe friends uh, or family members um, become estranged and become isolated. So this false unity or, or false unity of politics, right? The idea that that's going to be what unifies us, the, the false unity of, of those things. And so we, as we read this, we think about unity. Well, what is true unity? What is it that has captured David like David? Right? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. David, who, who has all of these things on his mind, he's ruling a country, he's doing all of these things, and yet he stops and he says, behold, right? Stop, look, and see, and then be in awe. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's something about it that's caused David to stop and just acknowledge it and say, man, that's beautiful. That's, that's amazing. One of the backgrounds for the psalm, right, is, is the, the people of Israel have not been unified. They had judges that ruled over them, and the tribes were scattered, and then all of a sudden, God, you know, the people weren't satisfied with that. So they said, hey, we need a king. We want a king. That'll unify us. So they got Saul. Saul did not unify them. They were not in unity. And yet, 
God, under the, under the leadership of David, has unified the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, as one nation together. And so that's one of the things that David's pointing to, is how God has unified his people, and how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Talking about true unity. Well, David says um, it's good and pleasant, and then he describes it in two ways. And two, probably both of them are going to be a little tough for us because we may have never heard of Mount Hermon, and we may not know much about anointing oil. But this is how he describes it. He says, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, running down all the way onto the collar and onto the robes of the, of the high priest. Aaron is the first high priest of Israel. And so when he was consecrated to that position, the, the man who would intercede for the people of God before a holy God, he was anointed with oil. And the oil was this precious oil. It was costly. It was expensive. And it was poured over him. And so David is looking at the people of God dwelling together, brothers dwelling in unity, and he says it's like that. It's like this beautiful thing that's poured over us. And then the second illustration that he gives us is Mount Hermon, which is the largest, tallest mountain in Israel. And it's up on the border of Israel and Syria, and it's, uh, it's really tall. And most of the time, it's covered in snow. But he, he talks about how it's like the dew of Hermon, dew that rests on that mountain. And that as it flows down, it flows down into the valley. And that valley, is that, that basin at the bottom of the mountain, is full of life and vegetation. In the midst of, a, of an area, a lot of us think of Israel, and we think of desert, right? And that's what it is for the most part, except for this place that's under the Mount of Hermon where the, the, the dew flows down and gives life. And so that, these are the two ways that David is describing what it's like when brothers dwell in unity. It's as precious a thing as he can think of. It's, it's a gift, right? Because this unity is not conjured up. He acknowledges that the unity comes down, whether it's being poured over the high priest, or whether it's flowing down from the mountain, they are not creating this unity. This unity is being poured over them. It's a gift that's being given to them. David understands the gift of unity, and that gift stops him in his tracks, and he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Good and pleasant. That's, that's a, a, a really interesting portion there, because... Oftentimes, it's one or the other. It's either pleasant, and it's not necessarily good for you, or it's good for you, and it's not necessarily pleasant. I think of pleasant as a, a double quarter pounder with cheese, which is definitely not good for me, right? Or maybe you think of pleasant as, uh, maybe that grosses you out. I know my wife is not too keen on that, but if you gave her a salad bowl with a hot fudge sundae, she would say that's pleasant, but it's also not good for her, right? But then we can all think of things that are good for us, but that are not pleasant. Right? Good, good, good things that are hard. Right? And if you're still thinking of food, you might be thinking of some vegetables. Right? There might be something coming to your mind, Myra. That's what I'm talking about. So, Brussels sprouts. Something that's good for you, but is not pleasant. But God, 
through David says that when brothers dwell in unity, it's both good and pleasant. Right? It's not one or the other. It's a good thing that we're receiving, that we're embracing, that is giving Him glory, and it's pleasant because we get to do it together. We have the gift of not trying to figure all of this out by ourselves. We get to do it in a community of people that are, that are frail, that are sinful, that make mistakes, but we get to do it together. We don't have to have all the answers, and we get to look to Jesus together. David says how good and pleasant it is. And then he uses the word dwell. I think that for us, we have a hard time with dwell. We live in a society where everything's instantaneous, and most of it doesn't last very long. So not only can we get it really quickly, but then it goes away really quickly. But David's talking about something that that when brothers dwell in unity, when they abide in unity, when they stay in that place. And so we have, that's going to be a little bit of a struggle for us. Jesus talks about abiding in him. Right? Staying in Him. Resting in Him. We've seen it in some of the other Psalms of Ascent. Of what it looks like to be in a place and stay there. Those who dwell in unity. It's this abiding unity. It's not momentary. And so the question becomes, how do we get there? If my circumstances are I can have anything instantaneously... And it usually goes away pretty quick. How do I get to that place where we dwell in unity? Where we stay there? Where we rest there? So I want us to look to Christ. Right? David is, is looking to Zion. He says it in, the, in verse 3. It says, in, in like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And we've talked about Zion being the dwelling place of God. Right? Being the promise of peace being the promise of resting. And we know, having the whole story, that the promise of peace is consummated in the person of Jesus. So we're going to go to Ephesians 4. And we're going to spend some time there looking at what it means to be unified. What unity looks like in the body of Christ. I'm going to read it. And it's a, like I said, it's a longer passage. And then we're just going to come back and look at a couple different points. But... Really, the hope would be, hey, this week, as we think about David saying, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, that we would continue to ponder it. That this wouldn't be just this momentary thing, but it would be something that we think about and we read Scripture and we say, God, that's beautiful. And we long to be a people like that. Will you show us how to do it? And we read Ephesians 4. We dive into it as the body of Christ. And we read John 17. And so it doesn't all happen right here in this 30 minutes, but it happens throughout our lives to where God produces a people that would dwell together in unity. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. There's a lot there. A lot for us to sit and meditate on for weeks, for months, for years to come. But a couple of things, just as we're thinking about what does it mean for brothers to dwell in unity, I want us to see a couple things here. The characteristics of brothers, right? In verses 2 and 3, we see, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We read that and we say, man, that's beautiful. And if you're like me, you say, man, that's not me. When we think about the characteristics of brothers dwelling in unity, right? And we read these words and we think about humility and gentleness and patience, peace, love, right? All of that is fruit of the Spirit. All of that is things that, that, would, that do unite us. Those things do unite us when we dwell in those things. Because it's the fruit of the Spirit of God working itself out in our hearts and in our minds. And so we, we do experience peace. We do experience that beautiful unity. Sometimes, though, I read this and I think, man, I need to be more humble or I need to be more gentle or I need to bear with one another more in love. And all of those things are true, but I make it this thing that I need to go out and achieve rather than resting in what Christ has already purchased for me. You guys do that? Anybody else? Anybody else take some of these good things of God and say, oh, I need to do that. And yet, by doing that, or, or thinking that we need to do that, it either leads to uh, self-righteousness or it leads to shame, right? Well, we think that we need to do those things. But when we rest in what Christ has done for us, we watch and we see the beauty of it. And we, like David, say, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When the gifts of God become things that are given to us, they are good gifts, rather than things that we've earned or achieved, that's when we can be like, behold, man, this is beautiful. This is a sweet gift. Verse 3 talks about the unity of the Spirit, right? The reality that if we are unified, it is only because of the work of Christ and the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. Verses 4 through 6 talk about oneness over and over. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all, through all, and in all. Verse 7 talks about how it's the gift of Christ, what He has purchased for us. This unity. Verse 13 says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? This, this true belief that we share, that Christ is sufficient, that what He's done is sufficient, and we're going to rest there, but we're also going to walk in His righteousness. 
How do we do both those things? And it's this growing to mature manhood. I, I'm so impatient. I, I think that growth should happen like that. I think it should be like a microwave, right? I, I'm growing in these things. I read it, so I'm just going to believe it to be true and it's going to take place. But the reality is that God works these things in us in His timing. And sometimes it may seem quick and sometimes it might seem really long. But am I going to sit and wait patiently and still trust that God is doing those things both in me and in my wife and in my kids and in my neighbors and in people I don't like, right? That God is working these things in them if they are in Christ. And then finally in verse 15 and 16, it talks about what it looks like to grow into Christ. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Twice he references love there, and he points to Christ and what Christ did in love. So it's not this emotional feeling, it's this sacrificial act, this sacrificial way of thinking, of living, Christ put others ahead of Himself. Christ laid down His life that we would have life. That's what it looks like to both trust that Christ has done it and to walk in what He's purchased for us. It looks like sacrificial love. For some of you musicians, I have a, a great illustration for us, but but the, the call then is to imitate Christ, right? Not to search for unity and long for unity, but to long for Christ. And if we get Christ, then we get unity, right? That's one of the things of God that we will often chase after rather than chasing after God himself. We chase after peace or we chase after uh, this other good gift of God rather than chasing after God himself. So we long to imitate Christ, A.W. Tozer puts it this way, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be where they did become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You guys hear that? Like we can, we can strive for unity and we won't get it. Or we strive for Christ and as we grow closer to Christ, as we pursue Him, as we are transformed and changed into His image, we become unified. That's what we're talking about. Is, it's like David beholding and saying, man, this is beautiful. And yet I know it's a gift, and I'm not going to seek the gift. I'm going to seek the giver, and I'm going to pray that that gift shows up in my life. And not for the sake of my comfort, but for the sake of God's glory, right? Every good gift points back to the good giver. It's not for us to just sit and enjoy. It's for us to worship and say, God, you are good. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for being a good and gracious God and King who would shower us with these things. So we've heard David talk about unity, and we've heard Paul talk about unity. But Jesus, in his last moments with his disciples, 
is praying to God. And what does he pray for? He prays for unity. John 17 says this. If you want to turn there, it's, it's a longer passage. And, and so I just I want to jump around a little bit. But this is the high priestly prayer. The beauty of it is we've already talked about the high priest, right? Aaron came before a holy God. And he was anointed and consecrated with this holy, uh, with this oil that was expensive and costly, right? And now Jesus has come and he has become the high priest for us. We, we no longer need to have a human high priest. We have the Son of God interceding on our behalf. And what does he say? What does he pray for his disciples and for his people? He says this, he says in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In verse 9, Jesus is, is praying and he says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus understands, he says, hey God, you've given me these people. And nothing can, be, nothing can happen to them because they're yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. All of this leads to the glory of God. And then in 20, 22 and 23, this is kind of the crux of where we're, we're going to look at what Jesus is saying. He says, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. See, unity is not just something that we behold and we look, we, we like David say, behold, man, that's really beautiful. But it's something that we long for so that others would know Jesus. Right? Because we are a reflection, we are made in his image. So when we dwell in unity, it reflects the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God that work together harmoniously, that is beautiful. When we dwell in unity, we're reflecting that to a world that needs to see unity. We're pointing them to the God who saves, the God who is glorified, right? The God in Zion, when we go back to Psalm 133, Zion, the dwelling place of God, because that's where the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore, is in His presence. And then His presence came to earth in Jesus. And so we have Jesus and we rest there and we rejoice in who He is and we tell the world. And we got to tell ourselves over and over and we tell our families and we preach the gospel continuously to each other because we need to hear it because we're going to forget. We're prone to wander, Right? And yet we have the gift of saints dwelling together, brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is. I want to leave you with a couple things. I want to leave you with, with three questions. Um, and so the first two are kind of two sides of the coin here, but have you sought unity instead of Christ? In the past weeks, months, years, today, have you sought unity Instead of Christ. Again, the flip side of that coin. Have you disregarded or ignored unity? Right? Because if, if David, if, if unity is so important that he would stop and say, Behold, how 
good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. If Paul would spend passages of Scripture defining, talking about the church and saying it should look like this, it should look unified brothers together in Christ, brothers and sisters together in Christ. And if Jesus, in his final prayer with his disciples, would pray that we would be unified, that we would be one, then it's got to be a big deal. And so have we disregarded unity or ignored it? And then the third one is this. How do we both desire, long for, want unity, and patiently wait for the church to grow and mature in unity? Because that's the language Paul uses. That it's growing, it's maturing, it's a longer process than what we think. So how do we both long for it to the point where uh, we want it so bad, right? Because we want Jesus, and we know that if we get Jesus, we're going to get unity. So we want unity also. But we're also going to be patient when we don't see unity, or when we disagree, or when we have those things that would come between us. So how do we walk in those things? The answer is, is believing the gospel, right? The answer is that uh, if... If what the gospel says is true, then Christ has purchased those things for us. And if we are in Christ, then those things will take place. And if we are in Christ, then we should long for those things. So the, the gospel speaks to that, that Jesus was walked in perfect unity with, with his brothers, with those that were his. And so we believe those things to be true, and we pray that God would do those things. But as you go this week, just let's, let's ask those questions. And maybe it's not unity. Maybe it's something else that you've sought that wasn't Jesus, right? Another gift. But in this particular context, I want us to think about unity. And in a, in a country that's longing for unity, in a, in a people that's longing for unity, we have the gift of true unity. We can point them to what would actually satisfy their desire to be connected to something that would last forevermore, as it says at the end of Psalm 133. The Lord has commanded the blessing in Zion, life forevermore. So let's pray and ask that God would do those things. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that um, both the call and the means are available to us, Lord. And yet, it's a growing, and it's a maturing, and it's a process that takes time. And Lord, we, we're just impatient. I'm impatient. I'm impatient with, with it in my life and with the life of those that I love and care about. So Lord, I pray that you would just help us to realize that, that we would long for unity, that we would long more, more so for Jesus. Lord, our hope is that you will come and that you will come soon. Lord, and in the meantime, that you would be working in the church to make us image bearers of who you are, that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that you're due. We thank you for your word. We trust it to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.